Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Making his Luck on Sunday debut is Steve Mellish. Steve, obviously a regular on racing TV. Um, an exciting time of the year. I think for for everyone, um, your your first thoughts about what you saw yesterday about this time of the season, the jump season in Ireland closing in in Britain, and of course the the flat season really picking it up now. Yeah, well we were talking off air. It's so fast at this time of year, isn't it? Besides, you know, the Guineas, you know, or half the Guineas already over, and uh, Chester next week, and York the week after, and various tries. It's it's, it's fast moving. What did I think? I thought I thought Punchestown first of all. I thought was just amazing for the domination of, of one yard. Like, mm. I've never seen anything like it. Is it 19 winners? William 19 Mullen? winners for William Mullins. Absolutely Mullen. incredible. Uh, the Guineas was, I, I, I'm not saying in any way, shape or form I could have fancied a winner. I'm not surprised by what happened. We've, you know, again, you know, we talk about racing a bit and I did think going into this year, it was, I wasn't going to trust any of the two-year-old Pecking order. It's yeah. not we haven't seen good horses last year, but the fact that something's better than something else last year. I thought it was such a weird year, mm. with so condensed and Royal Ascot happening in, in sort of the second week, trainers not going for their normal targets. It was just everything seemed rushed, and yeah. so I think I think going on last year's form is dangerous, basically. So that didn't surprise me. I was quite pleased that the first and second had both had runs this year, which. You know, that's it. Probably won't happen today, but that fitted slightly into what I was imagining. Did not that I got anywhere near to uh, picking the winner. <laughs> yeah, same here. Well, let's have a look back at the at the guineas uh, yesterday, the two thousand guineas from the start, uh, and of course pre-race. It's worth putting into context the fact that battleground was extremely well backed for the race, um, and of course uh, Thunder Moon pre-race. Uh, Lydia Hislop and Martin Dixon working for Racing TV were quick to point out how physically he hadn't progressed like a few others had. Yeah, that, 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 that clearly was useful and certainly his run was, was very, very disappointing. It was a very disappointing race for Aidan O'Brien. You know, Wembley, Battleground, um, Van Gogh, the, 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 the possibly excuses there in that he's more of a derby horse and showed something. But certainly the other two... And there was there, there seemed to be money for battleground, mm. uh, and that ran poorly. Um, so that was you know whether that's going to have any relevance on today, I don't know. But certainly he'd have been disappointed with the result. Um, and then I think the, the, that one of the reasons you watch it is you you try and find out is anything thrown up you know as a, as a derby possible. You mm. have dreams of you know triple crowns all that stuff. Yeah. And uh, I, I thought the most likely horse <laughs> to go onto the derby was the winner yeah. in terms of there is some hope on the damn side of a pedi his pedigree that he might stay, but that seemed to be fairly quickly um, uh, put to bed or dismissed by, by Kevin Manning afterwards. Yeah, I spoke to Kevin Manning afterwards and he seemed to be adamant, or at least favouring, the mile route, but 
it's something we'll be chatting to, to Jim yeah. Bolger a little bit later on. Perhaps we can ask him about that. But this was the interesting part of the race, obviously, yeah. the business end. Um, his attitude, I think, is, is extremely likeable. Extremely likeable. Yeah, he really tries. I mean, to be fair, you can't much fault the second's attitude no. as well. I think if there was a, a slightly unlucky horse in the race, I know the third got slightly cramped for room, and you know maybe you could argue that way. I think the, the unfortunate horse in the race was probably the runner-up, only because of where he was drawn, and when he made his move quickly, he went past horses, and I, I, I don't mean that quickly as a criticism, he went past horses going much better than them, and he just saw a daylight in front of him, um, and I thought that made him vulnerable. And we're talking about inches here. Yeah. I think you could argue that had he been drawn three or four inside and come from where the winner did, um, he might have won. Who knows? Yeah, I think William Buick probably felt that way after the race, um, but it was interesting to see the fact that he had made up his ground as quickly as he did Masters of the Season, something that's become a bit of a trademark in his race. He did it in the national stakes as a two-year-old as well. He did. Um, but let's just go back to the winner, a little bit more about his pedigree, because we'll obviously talk to a man who knows more about yeah. his pedigree than, than anybody else. But your opinion as a, as a person who's watched racing for a long time, looking at what you've seen, you see some stamina in there, surely. Definitely, and backed up by... Um, his run style, as in he's a staying miler. He's not, um, um, I mean, I wouldn't imagine the second would step. So if I look at breeding, yeah. that sort of run style, you'd have real worries about eking out for another half a mile. Yeah. The way the winner won, in, in a nicest sense, they were sort of ground it out in the final furlong admirably, you know, great attitude, yeah. struck me that he'd have absolutely no problem staying further. Mm. Whether he stays a mile and a half, I don't know. But this is a debate after every guineas. Yeah. And when you then looked at his pedigree, you say, well, you know, there are chances yeah. here. It's not, you know, it's not by any means impossible. So I was slightly surprised to see. And it's nice to have things clear. If they are going to go the mile route, that's great. And they, yeah. you know, they know the horse. Jim Bolger knows uh, the family really, really well. Yeah. And he'd, uh, you know, he'd be a fine judge of that. Yeah, and worth talking about Jim Bolger and Kevin Mann. An extraordinary, yeah. enduring, high-class partnership for a long time. But apart from everything else, uh, Jim Bolger, you know, breeding the winner... Uh, last season, breeding not only a horse like Poetic Flair, but from the same crop he had, or same crop of three-year-olds, Max Sweeney, uh, he bred uh, Gear Up, who won the great the Group One for Mark Johnson. It's an extraordinary achievement for for someone to continue to produce this sort of quality. Oh, he's, he's an amazing man, basically. Uh, he had a lot to do with you know, behind the Galileo story and lots of other things. I mm. mean, to do with the, you know, the breeding side is is. Um, you know, he's absolutely nobody's fool. That's the point. And yes, he does. He has produced horses. I mean, he produced horses who then sold on, and they've represented Godolphin yep. uh, as a three. Having having had them a two, run this one, he's kept himself at least for the for the time being. Anyway, yes. um, and yeah, he's 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 um, a, a real proper trainer who knows his craft. As yeah. well as anybody, and the fact that it's a link up with him, can be managed to study law as well. Yeah. But he's not a young man; he's, he's second or third, second, up, to, second Lester, oldest yeah. to Leicester to win the Guineas, and he still looks um, absolutely uh, as good as he was. You know, he's, yeah. he's got nerve, and he's, he sounded very confident afterwards. They obviously yeah. have a very good relationship, yeah. which is great. It, it was the it was the confident. I mean, Jim Bolger was actually on on Nick Luck's uh, podcast earlier in the week, and he was very confident. Well, he's about proper Nick Luck. He's not like the Luck real on Sunday, which I'm the real doing Nick with Rishi Prasad. <laughs> Right. Are you the real Steve Ellis? <laughs> <laughs> There's only one, which thank God. Uh, one thing it might worth having a look back at is the jockey cam footage from yesterday's race. Now, the one thing about this is that it was on Declan McDonough, uh, who was aboard Thundermoon. So at some point, you're going to see the majority of the runners because Thundermoon <laughs> backed away. Disappointingly for a lot of people who, who 
were really impressed. I certainly was in the Thunder Moon camp going into the race. Um, but we'll have a look back at the, the, the footage. Uh, interesting to see one or two horses. I mean, I was interested in Muta Sabek, who you'll see come up on the left in just a moment in the Sheikh Hamdan colours, because I thought he was an interesting runner, Steve. Oh, he was, yeah. Based on that one win, his pedigree, etc. It's like it all came too soon for him. What he is, I don't know whether he turns out he is a miler or whether he turns out um, to be better over shorter. I don't know. But he gave the impression on, on just a couple of watches of finding the whole experience a bit too much for him. Well, that's, and that's understandable. He's coming from winning a, uh, a small field race in a really good time and very impressively. This is just a completely different kettle of fish. That's how it looked. Just to the left is the horse number two, Frankie Dettori, going alongside Mutasarbek. That's Battleground, who obviously we said before was very well back before the race. There clearly was some confidence in him. Any excuses? I know you said he, he ran disappointingly. Any excuses in the way the race unfolded and how much daylight Frank and Tory saw on him well, through it? Marginally, maybe, yeah. But then only if you're talking about fractions of an inch at the end or, 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 or a bit here and there. He's in trouble a long way out. Mm. He, was, he was just very disappointed. He was <coughs> sort of the horse I was talking about. He's a, he was a very good two-year-old. I want to see it again to see he's a very good three-year-old. And the same would apply to, to Wembley and to a, say, to a lesser degree for me, Van Gogh. But whatever... They, for, I think they have to prove it again. The yeah. fact that they got to the top of the tree last year, I think, is um, less reliable even than normal. Always fascinating to see these pictures, but almost sad watching it from Declan Madonna's point of view on a horse that had promised so much going into the Guineas and Thunder Moon. Oh, absolutely. And the way he you know, won in Ireland last year and the pace he showed, the turn of foot he showed. Look, until proved otherwise, there may be, a, there may be something physical. Who knows? Yeah. But given um, the comments that were made beforehand about the paddock and given how the horse runs... Um, until proved otherwise, you're having your doubts about whether yeah. he's trained on, aren't you? Well, Steve, guess who we've got on the line? The man who is celebrating another Guineas winner. Uh, eight years after Dawn Approach won the race, he's celebrating success with a son of Dawn Approach. It's Jim Bolger. Jim, good morning. How are you? How is Poetic Flair? Good morning, Rafi. Good morning, Stephen. Um, he's very well. He's home and uh, he's not the worst of his experience. So... Uh, we hope it will be onwards and upwards from here. Can you just give us an idea of what it was like watching him go through the race, Jim, and, and how you felt as the race unfolded? Well, I was a little concerned that uh, he grabbed his bridle coming out of the stalls, which was, that would be most unusual now for him because he's quite laid back. So uh, whatever the reason was, um, Kevin said he got him into a rhythm after about a furlong and a half. And he didn't feel that he was taking too much out of himself, even though uh, he was turned the head around a little bit. But um, he settled nicely then after that. And uh, I always felt we were in with a good chance. And when they really got got down to work, uh, I didn't really know how, how that might pan out because uh, he, he was, <coughs> excuse me, he he was never asked a question like that before, so it was all very new to him, but he responded very gamely, and um, uh, we got the verdict at the line. I wasn't sure when they'd gone over the line, especially when I heard the commentator call the other horse. Uh, I wasn't sure that we had won. I didn't think we'd been beaten either, so I probably would have set for a dead heat at that stage, but uh, it, it, it was nice to hear the verdict. Uh, and, and Jim, 
watching the way the, the horse put his head out, head down and, and tried was, was wonderful to see. Um, you know the family, of course. I mean, this is, when we talk about horses bred in the purple, this is a horse bred in the purple and white uh, of, of the colours, of the Bulger colours. I mean, he is a horse that has, obviously, dawn approach, but the downside you, you know extremely well. Um, so perhaps you could, you could just expand a little bit on what I spoke to Kevin yesterday about and, and pedigree-wise. And Kevin seemed to, to think, you know, no need to go beyond a mile. What are you thinking about the future for him and what potentially he could achieve in terms of the distances? Yeah, um, well, we'll, we'll be staying at a mile for the moment anyway. Uh, and uh, I don't see any great need uh, to go upwards. Um, so I think I very much be regarding him as a miler. I'm not saying that he wouldn't get a mile and a quarter, uh, especially maybe next year, but uh, I would think for the foreseeable future anyway that he'd be staying at a mile. Uh, and what's the satisfaction like for you, Jim? I mean, obviously this is something you've done before, bred top-class horses, uh, bred classic winners, but, but to do it again, uh, to do it again with poetic flair, what, what does this mean to you? <laughs> well, it's a it's a mixture of satisfaction and, and uh, a certain amount of economic relief as well. <laughs> you know, uh, the way we run the business here, uh, it, it's um, sort of very much tilting at windmills. I mean, the opposition in those races are playing with their beer money and uh, I, I'm playing with whatever I can get. Uh, to compete with them, and uh, I can tell you that it's not easy. But mm. I'm, I'm not looking for sympathy in that regard. <laughs> uh, it's 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 uh, the cutthroat sport of horse racing at the highest level, and uh, I intend to try to compete there as long as I can. Uh, I don't know the, uh, how long it will go on for. Uh, but uh, I view it from year to year anyway. And at the end of each year, well, I say to myself, well, we're still here. We'll give it a go for another year. But uh, that's sort of how precarious it is, that mm. if I can't come up with a good horse every few years, uh, it, it's very difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's extremely difficult. So that's why it's a, an, an equal measure of great satisfaction and joy and delight for, for my family and my staff, uh, but it's also um, uh, relief that uh, I'm going to be able to hang in there for another year or so. Uh, extraordinary to hear you say that. So you, A lot of people would have expected... Uh, you know, perhaps the, the second part of that sentence not be an issue, but uh, it is revealing, Jim. So thank you for that, that honesty. I'd like to just focus on, on Dawn Approach for just a second, because the, the, the brutal commercial world of, of the bloodstock industry doesn't sometimes allow patience for, for young stallions. Uh, and that seemed to be the case with, with Dawn Approach. But you're, you're obviously backing him and not losing any faith. Well, I've been reckless in the past, so one more time might make, I mean, might make too much difference. But uh, we had the horse here, and uh, uh, he ticked all the boxes, and I expected him to, to make a stallion. Now, I know it's not quite as simple as that, but uh, 
we got some terrific encouragement in the early days. Uh, we had a couple of hard luck stories with uh, potentially what were very, very good horses. And uh, for one reason or another, they didn't get to show their, their, their true ability. But uh, I certainly hadn't lost faith with him. Uh, and uh, I kept on using him and intend to do so uh, mm. this year and hopefully next year as well. Uh, what is your view, Jim, about how quick we are to, or the, the racing industry uh, is, to, to judge a young stallion and potentially uh, lose a horse that might, a stallion that might need a bit more time to, to, to establish and develop their influence on the pedigree? Do you think it is too brutal? Well, the whole, the, the whole commercial side of the business, the, the whole commercial side of the business is, uh, well, it's about 75% commercial and the other 25% is, is uh, uh, brought there by people who wish to breed racehorses and ignore uh, what's happening in the commercial world. Now, I know it's not possible always to completely ignore what's happening in the commercial world because if you have a really good horse, he has to have something to his pedigree uh, that will recommend him uh, to potential buyers. But uh, there's an awful lot of uh, an overemphasis on fashion and popularity and that sort of thing. And uh, uh, whatever the in-horse or in-horses is or are for uh, at any particular time, uh, that's they're the ones that they all want to go for. And mm. they all end up chasing the same uh, progeny of the same half dozen stallions. But fortunately, uh, the whole game is not as simple as that. And good horses can crop up from other sources as well. Witness the winner of the Kentucky Derby last night. Yes. Bought for a thousand quid with mm. everybody looking on. So uh, I think that's another example of... Uh, people backing their own judgment and, and uh, not being afraid to put it out there and go for a big one with a horse that only costs $1,000. Indeed. Jim, if I could ask you about Max Sweeney as well, uh, son of New Approach, an another one of uh, your, your horses, your, your, your derby winner, uh, and, and what the, the, the future holds for, for Max Sweeney, the winner of the Verton Futurity at Doncaster last year? Uh, yes, well... Uh, I have to, it, it's all down to uh, how the poetic flair comes out of his race. Uh, I'm thinking at the moment that he'll probably go for the French Guineas, in which case uh, Max Sweeney will go for the Darrenstown at Leopardstown. And uh, if all goes well there, then we'll probably go back for... Uh, the Irish Guineas at the Cora, uh, well, it would be a toss-up then between him and Poetic Flair. But again, I wouldn't run the two of them. And then uh, go on for the Derby then with, with uh, Max Sweeney. All going well. Well, fingers crossed for that project. Uh, and Jim, the, the, the last thing I'm going to ask you about is it's a man who, of course, you, you, you know better than most. But Kevin Manning continues to, to, to hold his own 
in the elite company of, of horse racing. Just, just your, uh, your thoughts on, on his achievements uh, at, at the age of 54. Well, his achievements are massive. And uh, at, at his age, well, he's always minded himself very well. Um, you know, he, he, uh, he eats well and he, he keeps himself fit all year round. And uh, that's a big help. Um, he, he doesn't overwork. Like, you won't find him uh, out far uh, very much in, 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 during the winter time. Mm. He, he does get a break as well. And uh, he's able to recharge his batteries. And he has plenty of interest outside of racing. And I think that's a huge help to him as well. And then um, um, he's got good family support. And, and that's a huge help. So uh, I can see him going on for probably as long as, as he wishes. So, uh, and he'll be my favourite jockey as long as he wants, as long as he wants the job. Uh, we hope you carry on for as long as you wish as well, Jim. Fascinating. Well, uh, uh, you, you know what I said about me now. It, it, year to year, it depends on how we're getting on. So that's, that's exactly how it is. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiworld Dubai. Welcome back to Luck on Sunday. We're going to be talking uh, racing finances, racing politics now. So uh, it's great to welcome to the show David Armstrong, the chief executive of the RCA. We also have uh, Dave Yates of The Mirror to uh, help us through the discussion. And the reason we've got David and, and Dave is because of last week's uh, compelling interview between Rafe Beckett and Nick Luck in this very studio. Here's a recap. Racecourse executives, particularly those, when we talked with Richie Galway earlier, particularly those whose business model is based on big crowds, big festivals, are losing money hand over fist during COVID. They'll say, look, you can't expect us to be, well, to be dipping in here when we've got no money. And some of these racecourses have, have told you how close they've been to going to the wall. The, Do you really tax, believe that? Perth and Newton Abbots of this world. Do you really believe that? Tell me why I shouldn't believe that. Because they're getting between 10,000 and 12,000 a race. Sorry, yes, 10,000 and 12,000 a race. They're getting around 1,000 quid a runner. That hasn't stopped. They're not having to put in place the infrastructure to have a crowd. Some of these small independent race courses have done extremely well. They'll deny that. But they are doing very well. They have done very well racing through COVID with no crowds. And have you got data and evidence yes. to back that up. Yeah. So put some meat on the bones for me, Ray. And for those who aren't familiar with how racecourses are financed, just give us a bit more detail. We, I came on this programme two years ago and said that they were getting £1,000 a runner. That hasn't changed. You know, they're still getting that. Without a crowd, you don't have to, you don't have to have the, the, the employees to attend. To, to look after a crowd of sometimes only 1,000 or 1,500 people, sometimes less. That's saving them a lot of money. They use the furlough scheme extremely well, ARC. And the idea in particular, we know that, you know, the ground at Lingfield and Yarmouth on resumption last year was, 
you know, they had to row back pretty quickly to get it in, in uh, suit, uh, fit for racing. You know, the race courses have have blocked progress mm-hmm. rather than enhanced pre-COVID, and they're bl- still blocking progress now, in my view. Okay, how are they blocking progress now? Well, in the sense that um, they're not giving nearly enough to prize money, in my view. You know, they could be giving a lot more, and it wouldn't touch the sides. We know from their media rights, we know that. Racecourses will have to start competing for runners. And we, I, I and I'm sure many others have been looking forward to this, tri- this time. This is really what's going to, in my opinion, change. I think another thing that needs to happen is that, is that uh, the way levy money is distributed has to change. It's been distribu- distributed by fixture since the 60s. That's all wrong, in my view. OK, so how do you change it? What you do is you say to the race courses, how many, a race course, how many class threes are you prepared to run this year? And when they say, we'd like to run half a dozen or whatever it is, that you then say, OK, you can have X for those half a dozen class threes and uh, you'll get why if you match funded. Right. So you're, you're asking for them to make a, a significantly higher prize money exactly. contribution to their, to their own purses. But How the problem with that, Nick, of course, is that there are race course representatives on the levy board. And, you know, again, they'll do their best to block that. So naturally, those points that Rafe Beckett raised in conversation with Nick uh, has raised a lot of uh, interest from, from the racing media and also a response from, from the RCA, David. What was your impression, first of all, of the overall tone and context of what uh, Rafe said here last week? Well, look, Rafe's always a very interesting um, interviewee to, to sit and listen to and, and made some very good points as well. There's some points that I think probably need some some factual clarification and and you may remember back in the early autumn time Mm. um, the RCA published a document explaining and setting out how the finances of a race course work and I think you know I refer people back to that and encourage you to look at that which would help you to understand why it's not actually the case that race courses are making super profits in COVID or squirreling money away quite the opposite in fact. Uh, yeah, in that in that report, it says that racecourses have increased prize money over the last eight years by 72%, in real terms, 42%. Um, and there are, quite clearly, in that report, uh, clear evidence of where the money is going to. So then we go back to, to Rafe Beckett's points about, for example, racecourses are getting 10 to 12,000 pounds per race. Uh, they don't have overheads during COVID because there's not employees. They're using the furlough scheme. Are the racecourses in any way holding back money that could be used for prize money to make racing more profitable for owners, etc.? No, the, no, they're not, Rishi. And I think the, the, if you look back at the sort of the figure of ten to twelve thousand, first of all, that's not not a million miles away. Some, the average is actually slightly higher than that, but it's an average. So, when in any average, you've got winners and losers in that scenario. But what you've got to remember is what that's got to be spent on, and. 
racecourses might not have the, the cost associated with crowds at the moment, but they still have all the other costs of running their business. So a racecourse that runs 15 fixtures a year, on average, say, has 350 other days of the year in which it has to maintain its facilities, pay its bills, yeah. pay its staff, pay its management, and the, the income that racecourses receive from media rights during COVID and during lockdown isn't sufficient to cover all of those fixed costs. So overall, racecourses are still losing money during COVID. Um, some racecourses have done slightly better than others. A lot of that's got to do with the timing of the fixture list. Some of those that suffered the greatest uh, hardship are those, for example, that lost the most fixtures during the early summer mm -hmm. last year. So when we were either in complete lockdown yeah. or when we came back and we were only on the flat for a month, racecourses really suffered during that time. And some of those are the ones that have hurt the most. Rafe Beckett said, in his opinion, small independent tracks have done rather well through this period. You're, what you're saying is that's incorrect? That is incorrect. And, and, it, and it's, it's interesting that you know, I would define rather well as they've survived. And in that sense, they have done rather well uh, and have, d have taken some significant management actions to be able to do so. Uh, whether that's in terms of the furlough scheme that was mentioned, of course, uh, making employees redundant. Mm. Um, they have uh, ma managed to cut costs I as much as they possibly can during that period to keep themselves alive. They've borrowed extra money. They've taken money from shareholders. They've done all the things that any good business mm. needs to do to stay afloat. And you know, touch wood, we're still sitting with 59 racecourses still trading and, and up and running. And I think that's a success. It is a success. I guess the, the, the main issue that uh, everybody in racing now talks about is the fact that we've talked about prize money before COVID, prize money, uh, the levels of prize money, even in your report, when we get to the last page of the report and we compare the average prize money for Britain mm. against other racing jurisdictions, or the, the major racing jurisdictions around the world, we are at the bottom. Um, what, what's the solution? How are race courses able to make things any better? Are the race courses able to do anything? Or is that responsibility uh, not just the race courses? Uh, and uh, is that responsibility lie somewhere else? Well, I think the, if you look at that, that analysis with other countries, it's actually very interesting. And one of the things when you dig beneath it is to understand the structural differences between British racing and the other jurisdictions, particularly with regards to income from betting. Uh, and so one of the key measures for us is not, is not about trying to squ you know, get a few extra quid out of a race course here and there, because structurally that's not going to really change anything. Important projects that we're working on are things like levy reform, um, and you know, something which is you know, hugely supported and driven by race courses as mm -hmm. well as by the BHA and horsemen. And levy reform is that type of structural change that if we can unlock it, makes a difference and changes the, the, the position on international competitiveness. Squeezing an extra few thousand pounds onto a race value here and there is not going to change that. Uh, and at this point in time, race courses are putting in you know, everything they can in terms of prize money. There's been some good announcements in the last few weeks with Goodwood, mm. York, uh, from Pontefract yesterday at Thirsk, they run their richest race they've yep. ever run at the race course. Things like that are happening. Prize money is coming back. I, I don't want to, I'm going to bring Dave Yates in just a moment. I don't want to just say, right, these are all the points Rafe Beckett made and I, and I want a response from the RCA. But when we talk about the, the levy reform, one of the other points that Rafe did mention is that the race courses were blocking levy reform. He referred to the fact that on the levy board, there are race course representatives on there. Um, do you have any, is, is there any authenticity in, in that point? Absolutely not. Um, just to clarify on that point is that the levy board itself 
is not involved with the process of levy reform. So levy reform is, is effectively in the hands of government mm -hmm. uh, and, and will be decided upon at ministerial and government level. We'll be working as an industry, as the BHA, the horsemen and the racecourses together to try to unlock a structural solution that helps us. That would then be administered by the levy board. So the levy board doesn't have a say in, in how levy reform might work, but it does have a very important part you know, in advising us in the process. So that's how that works. Yep. On the BHA and horsemen and racecourse side, we're meeting frequently. There's a lot of work being done in the background on ways of looking at levy reform. Important step in that process now coming up in terms of com communication with bookmakers as well, in that we want it to be a collaborative approach. Yeah. Uh, and that opportunity lies just ahead of us. I'm going to bring Dave Yates in uh, at this moment. Uh, and Dave, obviously this is a conversation that we've had before. No doubt we'll be having it many times again in the future. You heard what Rafe Beckett had to say. You've heard what, what David's had to say. What, what's your assessment in, 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 in terms of where the main issue lies and, and what is actually solvable? Right, well, the main issue is that I think... Rafe Beckett is, I think Nick described him uh, last week uh, when he was referring to a previous interview, uh, that interview being prickly. Rafe is certainly punchy and he doesn't please everybody with his style. But of course, he's representing the owners who have taken a massive hit uh, during COVID-19. There was a 74-day racing blackout where the horses couldn't run. Then, of course, they ran for reduced purses. Owners have or haven't and then have and then haven't and now can again uh, go to see uh, their horses run. But in what is a fairly sterile uh, race course ex experience, I, I think, again, I, I, I don't want to misquote Rafe, and you'll certainly tell me if I do, but I, I think the feeling from him is, and, and this is something that's shared, I think, in the in the wider working world is is whether racecourses are using COVID-19 as something of a false beard whereby they can say, I'm sorry, but we can't make these contributions to prize money because we've been hit to such an extent in the same way that companies are, are laying off workers uh, by saying they've been hit with by COVID-19, but they merely just want to, uh, to to cut their wage bill. I think I think that's at the centre really of what Rafe was saying uh, last Sunday. David, I mean, it, there are a couple of questions. What, one is to almost to regurgitate what, a, a point that Rafe made last Sunday. He, he expressed at the start of that clip genuine suspicion that race courses, any race courses, had been uh, close to shutting down. I've, I've got a quote from him uh, that he said, I don't believe for a second uh, that ARC jockey club or small independents have suffered. Presumably that's something that you would take issue with. Uh, yes, I would. I think the if you look at the individual um, financials of each individual race course, or the race course groups, of course, as well, um, jockey club have lost over £100 million in revenue. And that was uh, only at the end of 2020. That's, that figure has increased since then. ARC have lost significant amounts of revenue. Small independents have lost significant amounts of revenue. Uh, have any, has any race course been close to going bust? One or two have been very close, mm. um, but so far have managed to weather that storm. Uh, the return of crowds is crucial, particularly for some of the small independents who are very dependent on crowds. The return of crowds, as soon as we can get it, will help them survive and carry on through. But uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's absolutely not the case to say that Jockey Club and ARC haven't suffered. They've, they've suffered hugely.
Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albastiet Cruel Dubai. He's reappeared. Steve Mellish is back in the room, just like that. And Steve, I know that you've been listening to the, the conversation that we've just had on, on the show about racing's finances. And you, apart from everything else, you, you are a racing fan. You've been involved and uh, you've wanted this sport to do well for a very long time. So you're as good as anyone to get a take on what the main, and I asked this to, to, to Yatesy as well, the, the main issue. What do you think the main issue is? Uh, two, two things. Basically, not enough money comes back from betting into the industry. That's a fact. Ever since they you know, legalised betting shops, that's been, the, that's been the case. And all you're talking about, with, for me, with levy reform and things like that, I think you're papering over the cracks. I'm not saying they're not good things, but they're papering over the cracks. You know, unless you have, if you like, uh, a tote monopoly. I used to be very, very anti. I'm, I'm, I'm slightly less anti than I was because of the behaviour of, of bookmakers over the last 10 years. I'm not sure how much choice there is. But anyway, by the by, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Not in real terms in my lifetime. So what do you do? You've got a limited um, amount of money coming in. I think we all agree on that. And COVID has accelerated how limited it is. I think it's not enough to take care of a very bloated fixture list. Now, I know there'll be people who, who, who want the fixtures that high. You know, some trainers, uh, some race courses, um, bookmakers who want it. It's, I'd have 400 fewer. I don't mean tinkering with 20 here and there. If you've got X to work with, you know, like a family, you've got a budget of X, you have to work out how best to spend it. I think it'd be much better spent having having... 700 fixtures a year rather than whatever it is, 1,200 or 13, or whatever it is, and having the money go round more. There'll be casualties, there will, but I think it's a much um, tighter, better sport. But ideally, I think you've got to work towards how do you get more money back in. And I still think there will be a way of, um, of, of, of forming some sort of yeah. uh, off-course monopoly down the line. It might take a few years, yeah. but I think you probably could do it with well, negotiations. We were talking before coming on the show this morning, we were talking about if we were a family, as you referred to it, managing a budget, you end up, if you're saying this is all the money that we've got, and this has been the case for a while, that this is all the money that we've got. Absolutely. And as hard as we've tried levy reforms, as hard as we've tried to get sponsorship, media rights, etc., it still seems to be not enough. Yeah. Uh, so you say... Right, so we spent, say you have two cars and you have a, a subscription to mm -hmm. uh, racing TV or, yeah, or yeah, whatever yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. You have to make the hard decisions. Yeah. And that's what real life is about, making the hard decisions, going, we cannot afford to have two cars. We're going to have one car. We cannot afford to have spend money on Netflix, Amazon. Or no. We have to start put it, putting an end to some of those things in order to make the money meet. Our, our real needs and our real needs and that's why I, I was asking David Armstrong this morning about priorities and, and what are the priorities what do race courses what does racing need to be better and it seems as if prize money is is what is needed because that is then in its own way going to filter down yes I mean that's why I think you'd have a dramatic effect overnight if that happened there'd still be issues as a longer term about how you properly get money from from betting into into the pool but you asked me as a racing fan, which is what I consider myself first and foremost, I think the, the, the fixture list we have now is ridiculous. Mm. I mean, I, can't think, I don't know anybody who watches more racing than I do. I watch it, you know, five, seven days a week, recordings, God forbid <laughs> how many. <laughs> It must be even a lovely I, place, your house. Well, <laughs> but even I would take the Liz, view that Liz I must love watching television. Absolutely adores it, luckily, <laughs> yeah. But I, that's why I, I, 
it becomes impossible to follow mm. an awful lot of it. And I don't see, so I don't think this burgeoning fiction is, is anything to do with what the customer wants. Nothing at all. I'd have it much tighter, but I say that's going to, people are going to have to take some views which maybe don't help themselves in the short term for the long term. If that's, you know, if you have, there will be people who would, who would to use Rafe Beckett's firm, would try and block that. Yeah. That's for sure. And I think they'd be wrong to do so. Well, I know that Steve has watched every, every <laughs> single moment of Punchestown. Uh, and if he was watching Punchestown, it means that he would have seen another virtuoso performance from Honeysuckle with Rachel Blackmore on board. Uh, Rachel is with us on the show. Uh, Rachel, first of all, how are you and how good was Honeysuckle? Uh, good morning, Rishi. I'm very well, thank you. Um, a little bit tired. I didn't quite make my normal bedtime last night. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> Yeah, Honeysuckle was incredible. Um, she really was. Look, she she maybe just felt the season a little bit in this run. Um, you know, she wasn't as fluid throughout the race, um, but you know, she delivers. She delivers every time when it's needed, and yeah, she's just unbelievable. We're just watching her go down to the last, Rachel. At this point, I actually was a little bit worried as she got in a little bit tight and was slow away from it, and I thought you might have been in trouble. How good was her response from the last? Yeah, to be honest, just five strides before the last, um, you know, she just she just kind of emptied under me, um, and I, you know, ended up letting her just kind of fiddle out over it. Uh, but the minute she felt uh, Sharjah's pressure, you know, she just her competitive edge kicked in and she took off again. You know, where where she found that burst of energy from, I don't know, but uh, you know, that's what the the very very good ones can do, and you know, she is one of those. Rachel, obviously, I think you ride a lot of horses with confidence, but in particular with Honeysuckle, it seems as if from, from start to finish, and I know you said she probably was feeling things a little bit uh, this week at Punchestown, but generally watching the two of you together, that you have utter, utter faith in her ability to be anywhere in a race and to do anything that you want. Yeah, I. Uh, if I had my time back now, I don't think I would have been as confident on her in Punchestown. Um, you know, I could have done with saving a little bit there, turning in. Uh, it might have helped us down over the last, but, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to say that now, I suppose. But she just, you know, she just, she always produces for you on the day, um, you know, and she she does give you a lot of confidence, uh, you know, in, in the way she runs and, you uh, yeah, like she's, you know, she's just, she's just an absolute dream for a jockey to be uh, associated with. To be honest, um, you know, she, she gets, she's got me out of trouble once or twice, and you know, uh, she's just incredible. She is incredible, and what is also quite exciting and incredible is all sorts of plans going round people's head for what she might do next season. Um, do you have any? I, I know. Jockeys often refer to the fact, well, it's not my decision. I just leave it up to the owners and trainer. I'm just glad to ride. But do you have any any thoughts on whether or not it's worth doing anything different with her and just stick to what she's very good at already? Yeah, I think you answered it beautifully for me there. Um, <laughs> uh, so look, I, I'm barely after I'm barely after taking breath about what she's after doing this season. Um, and you know, all those plans will be discussed. I'm sure with. Uh, with Henry, uh, Peter Maloney and Kelly, Kenny Alexander, um, you know, all options will be discussed. But, uh, you know, for me right now, I'm just, uh, you know, still, still enjoying what she's just after doing for us this year.
Fair enough. Fair enough. And, and how much are you, are you enjoying the, the, the aftermath of what has been the most amazing season once again? Oh, look, it's been incredible. Like, I just, I feel so incredibly lucky to be in the position I'm in. And for, you know, for for what's happened to me this season, it's, it really is just, um, it's hard, you know, and I, I said this before and whatever, but it, it is hard to, to kind of let it all sink in. You know, you, you people, you know, telling you well done this week and punch down for Aintree. And, you know, you kind of, it hits you every time someone says it to you that that actually happened, you know. Uh, so, Oh look, it's it's unbelievable, and uh, it's just nice to to have a few days now before we're back racing in Ireland. Um, you know, to kind of let us let us uh, take stock of it. Well, if you we, if you don't mind, whilst you're taking stock of it, we're just going to reflect again on the national success because it's fair to say that in terms of fame, this national success has perhaps propelled you to. To, to the being the most famous racing person at the moment, even more so than Frankie Dettori. I don't think Frankie Dettori gets messages from Billie Jean King or Bono, <laughs> um, but you did. Oh, like, the, you know, it's just phenomenal. Um, it really is. Like, I, I'm i not really sure what's going to happen tomorrow. I've told a lot of people that I'll speak to them about such and such after Punchestown, after Punchestown. So <laughs> after Punchestown is finally after arriving. So um, I don't know what's going to happen, but... Uh, Oh look, it's it it really, yeah, it really did show me what kind of a you know platform and a propeller that that race does have around the world. Um, you know, it 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 reaches a lot of different corners of the globe, and um, look, it was just massive, um, so massive. And to be honest, even riding, you know, riding Manila times over those fences in that race, like the. The ride I got off him, the spin I got off him, the way he jumped, like that was, that was a massive kick in itself. You know, even if I just went to entry that day to school around over those fences, you know, he he was just incredible. Um, the way he jumped and the way he took to the fences and the way he travelled, uh, was just, um, you know, it was unbelievable. Rachel, we we were chatting the other day when I saw you at the race course the last time, and I. I said, you know, when I saw you, I didn't know whether to, to acknowledge you as, as, as the most famous person in racing because one thing everyone always says about you, and I'm sorry to embarrass you here, is that just, you know, what a nice person you are and how friendly you are all the time. So dealing with, with all this newfound fame, more fame so, more so than uh, in, in recent times, is it just, is it, are you taking it all in your stride? I oh, know I'm told now I'm going to change after this. Um, you know, <laughs> it's all going to get to my head, so I, uh, I'll, I'll start my change tomorrow. And uh, people might not be saying that about me anymore. <laughs> well, whilst we're on that, I'm glad you've brought up the change because we're going to make your head get a little bit bigger now. Uh, because Steve Mellish and I were chatting uh, a little bit earlier on about how good you were at the Cheltenham Festival in particular. Um, and we, we were chatting about, Steve, you were wondering... We chose out what, what we thought maybe was uh, the best ride. But I'll be interested in your take before we say, is there one, any one ride at Cheltenham which you were, you were, you were pleased with? And it's not being arrogant, but one where you thought, yeah, I really got that right. You know, I made that, that, that was, that wasn't, it wasn't just the horse. Obviously, you need the horse, but there was something that you were really pleased with. Um, oh, look... Cheltenham, you know, when the ball is bouncing for you, the horses I was getting on, you know, I feel like a lot of them could have been ridden many different ways and they would have, you know, they would have won. Um, I probably, you know, two contrasting rides, you know, Tell Me Something Girl and Alaho, like Tell Me Something Girl, it was ridden in a way that I usually wouldn't ride and 
you know, I got a, I got a kick out of that. Uh, you know, dropping dropping her in, and you know, Alaho then was just allowed to allowed to gallop and jump, and yeah, look, they were different, you know, um, but. I just, I, I just felt incredibly lucky to be getting on those horses all week. As I say, um, you know, I, I think they could have been ridden any which way, a lot of them, and they'd have won. Uh, I, I thought, I, I, just speaking from from the outside, I thought your ride in the bumper made a difference. I thought you were, as, it, as the race panned out, you were in the perfect position and you made your move at the right time. I think some punchers town to a degree. Back that's you know, that 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 opinion up, you know, with Kilcrew uh, reversing the fall. I just thought that was a picture perfect ride. Yeah, I actually, in my opinion, I actually maybe kicked a bit early on him. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, but at the same time, like I jumped off to make the running, and I, I was just allowed to do that. You know, it wasn't any massive. Uh, you know, I just steered him around in front and nobody got to me, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, so, you know, sometimes things just work out in your favour like that and uh, if you think it was the best ride, I'm, I won't I won't stand here and uh, <laughs> refuse. But, uh, oh, look, uh, he's a serious horse with a massive engine and, you know, things worked out for him on that day and, um, you know, they didn't in Punchestown. But, you know, horses sometimes don't... don't uh, you know, match up with Cheltenham and and back in Punchestown. So, you know, you just you don't know what kind of season that horse has had until you run them again, I suppose. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. There was a British success in the Punchestown yeah. Gold Cup. Paul Nichols trained Clan de Zobo, and the man aboard was Sam Twiston Davies, who's on the line now. Uh, Sam, how are you this Sunday morning? Good morning. Yeah, not too bad, thank you very much. Um, quite, well, quite enough night last night. We had a nice time celebrating um, the day afterwards. So, um, yeah, it's just, just starting to sink in. Talk us through that performance from, from Clan de Zobo. I, I thought the most uh, stark thing, Sam, was the confidence. Uh, I wouldn't say aggression, but, but you rode him really positively and you seem to have a lot of confidence in that positivity. Yeah, you, you know, with, with kind of um, Paul, when he's, he has a plan in his head, um, he'll let, give you a lot of confidence in what he wants you to do and why, why he wants you to do it. So your job is to turn up, do the best as you can and, and hope it pays off. So to go over there, to have him in great shape, <clears throat> pardon me, sorry, just 20 days after the bowl was his stellar effort. I mean, it just shows um, how good a trainer he is, why he's the tr true champion over here. And um, I think it's, it's, it's just fantastic. And I'm just a very, very lucky to play a very small part in it. I thought it was a lovely touch, Sam, that I think you were the first person to ride Clan de Zobo to win on his, on his British debut all those years ago. Is that right? Old time ago that, wasn't it? <laughs> 2015, was it? Yeah, it was, yeah. We hadn't been having a... Uh, I'd been on a bit of a funny run, so I remember the horse um, very well because um, just was obsessed with just something winning and um, he, he put, just got to two out, just kick, gave him a kick in the belly and he just went further and further clear. He, he's such an honest horse now that the cheek piece is applied. I mean, how much does that make a difference to him, do you think? Well, I think obviously that and as well, just being good, good and forceful on him as well. I think it suited quite well. Just in the King George, we didn't get into a great rhythm. We had, didn't have a great slot. And then we ended up quite far back. And then we were plenty reliant um, on his jumping to get him there. And then it just we missed a few down the back. And 
that was annoying. Then he was good at Newbury, but then at the same time to see him like he was in the bowl um, was fantastic. Hey, look, I think I can afford a new phone now. This is my quality of my picture is awful, isn't it? Got <laughs> <laughs> some euros to spend. I'll have to go pop over there and get a new phone. Yeah, it, it looks like it might be a very old edition of the iPhone. Is that, is that what so it is? It, it's a grafter's iPhone. It's got dust in, in the camera. <laughs> I can see it. Look at it now. <laughs> God, um, yeah, don't work. So when, when, the, when, the, when Clander Zobo and you crossed the line on, uh, after winning the Punchestown Gold Cup, Ruby Walsh, who was working for Racing TV that day, said, this is a great result for racing. You obviously... Experienced the the Irish domination of the Cheltenham Festival. What was what was the feeling on the course at Punchestown after you'd won? Well, I think it, what, what Ruby said is um, it was exactly spot on. Um, England needs Ireland, and Ireland needs England. But I, c- I can honestly say to go over there and win against obviously William Mullins, Henry, like the seasons they've had and what they did to us at um, Cheltenham over there and get one back and then for Paul to then do it again on the Friday just I promise you bring so much joy and just you come back home and you you almost pinch yourself to think you've won an Irish gold cup it's just it's it's still very surreal. Mm. Well, when was the last time you'd ridden at Punchestown was it Baby Run? <laughs> no Baby Run was my first ride. First uh, ride yeah. Thought race, racing was easy um, he just made all and it was quite smooth then went back for Colando and um, one of Kerry Lee's in the two and a half mile Handicap, well, the three mile handicap chase that, that turned to be a little bit more difficult, and that was then me then again since then. You know, Sam, in racing, there are lots of stories that people find awkward to deal with, and people think to themselves, Look, um, let's not talk about it. But one of the things that it's nice to see is the fact that having been stable jockey at, at Paul Nichols, um, that you still have that relationship with him. That when Harry Cobden is not available and there's a big ride he feels comfortable enough to pick up the phone and say, Sam, will you ride Clanders over? Yeah, we're very lucky. And we, we never fell out. Um, at the end of the day, it's, it's, I see it. I've been so lucky to grow up with Dad at home. I've seen the, the pressure trainers get put under to be moving forward with jockeys and for people who want different jockeys for certain reasons. And there was just at a time when Harry was doing very, very well. I, I'd had a bit of a stop-start season. So I totally understand what, what he was going through and the pressure he was under to kind of keep me. Um, it, so it was it was a natural decision to kind of part ways and um, very lucky that we still get on well. He's got a great team of owners and I have to be, be very thankful to obviously uh, Jedson, Sir Alex and Mr. Barber as well because not just Paul keeps the faith, you have to, the owners have to keep the faith as well. And no hiding, I had a good season, but it was well down on a bit of quality. So um, it is it is really, really nice that they still look to me and trust me to go on one of their best sources. Absolutely. And how, how, how would you summarise the last season, Sam, for you? Um, it's a really tricky one because, obviously, very happy numbers-wise, was very busy. But when you ride a number, the number of rides I was getting, you always want to be winning more. So you, you're up and you're down. You're always trying to pick yourself up. We finished strong at the um, backside of the season of the Scottish champion, which is lovely, lovely. And then obviously to finish it like that was just truly fantastic. What I will say, what I really miss um, this season now is Chris Broad. Um, mm. He's finished. He's Well, he promised me when I started he'd see me through. So I did think for, for a bit of a joke I'd say I was stopping with him. But um, Gordon Clarkson's going to take us over at the end of the May. But um, he can, can assure us that um, he, Broad is still going to be there in the wings to help.
Well, it's nice of you to, to remember, of course. Yes, absolutely. We, uh, I had forgotten, hands up there, but uh, a, a fantastic agent for you and, and so many others. Um, and Sam, fantastic to see you, Klanizova, Paul Nichols and the team doing so well and, and bringing a bit of respite from the Irish domination with that success uh, in the Punchestown Gold Cup. And will you please get a better phone? <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, you can see Klanders over me going around Punchestown clearer than you can see me now anyway. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure when... if it makes me look better looking or not. <laughs> <laughs> it looks as if it's foggy there, but uh, Sam, yeah, more... thank you very much. Enjoy the no, rest of your you day. Thank you very much. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai.